This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Yeah, I said to my boys, it's like a breakfast with dads and lads. They said, how old are going to be the lads? I said, oh, mostly primary school lads. They said, oh, we're not interested. I said, it's an unlimited breakfast. They said, are you paying? I said, yes, and they were interested. <laughs> but it's funny with unlimited breakfast, isn't it? You just feel like, oh, right, I am going to have 20 sausages. You know, I'm, go- I, 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 I'm just going to go. But in the end, you know, I struggled to get, I, struggled, I had four and a half. Which is what, I'd have had four. Is that quite a lot? But it's not unlimited, is it? It's not unlimited sausages. You know, I mean, I was desperately trying to push, push in more. Think, 399, I need more. I need more in there. Uh, and so, so it's interesting, you know, you know the phrase, you are what you eat. So I'm four and a half sausages, four and a half sausages, five pieces of bacon, two hash browns, two bowls of <laughs> slices of baked beans, and a curry. And a couple of gin and tonics from, uh, <laughs> from Fl- Tom and Flick's uh, get-together last night. So um, I spent my time um, uh, eating and drinking, and actually we're, we're going to talk about food today. So um, if you've uh, if you had, I, I, put, I put a tweet this morning, there's going to be lots of Bible and hopefully a few takeaways. You know, takeaways, things you can apply to your life. So hopefully we're going to do that. Uh, if you want to know what we're doing, we're in a, a series called Disciple by Jesus. Uh, we're working through Mark's Gospel. Uh, we did Mark 12 last week. We're doing Mark 14. The reason why is if you want to read Mark 13, it's all rather complicated and uh, exciting stuff about the end of the world and the destruction of Jerusalem, which I have an interesting theory about. And if you want to come and talk to me about it, I'll give you my little one line on that. Uh, but but not for Sunday mornings. I thought it would really blow your head off. But actually, when I sat down to prepare this, or this was going to do this as well. So we're in Mark 14, uh, and the title is The Story of the World in a Meal. First day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Jesus' disciples asked him where he wants to go to make and make preparations for you to eat the Passover. He sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, a man carrying a water jar will meet you, follow him, say to the owner of the house, he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, finished, furnished, sorry, and ready, make preparations for us there. The disciples left and went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. Uh, so they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. 
It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he gave given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, or the new promise, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, you will not drink, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they'd sung a song or hymn, they went out to Mount of Olives. Father, we pray as we look at this absolutely critical meal, this meal of all meals, this meal that we're asked to do as often as we eat it and drink it, this meal of community, this meal of life together. I pray as we look at this meal and we look at the story of the world in this meal, I pray that we'd come again, come uh, with greater understanding, come away with a greater desire to, to understand and to share this meal together. I pray it wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't make this meal a religious meal that's some sort of symbolism only, but I pray we'd enter fully into the story of the meal and we'd eat it afresh with fresh understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so it's interesting. I was thinking, if you, I've preached on the, the Last Supper here twice. Uh, I've preached on it probably five or six times. And, and I, when I'm trying to prepare a sermon, I'm trying to think, God, I want something fresh. Now, I could have given you just the main kind of points. I could have given you the main line, Last Supper sermon, about how it's like Passover, and we will do a little bit of that in there. But I was thinking, well, God, what would you want me to say? And I was reading some stuff and praying and thinking about it, and I thought, actually, so much flows into this meal and flows out of this meal, we probably don't understand the fullness of it. And when I sort of had the idea about this meal is kind of like a picture of a lot of the whole Bible story, I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I start digging around, and I thought, man, we could have done a 10-week series. So I'll try to be short but there's lots in here. So we're going to go through the Bible, the story of the Bible, and we're going to look at food, and we're going to look at how it relates to this meal. Okay, first time that we see people eating in the Bible. It's usually in Genesis, if I say the first time anyone wanted to play, tell me when when, uh, eating. Fruit from trees, yeah, fruit from trees, isn't it? In fact, it's even before the fruit from tree, a tree is eaten, uh, what, what does it say? Actually, you can put it up here, Zach. So I put the head in here, in the beginning God prepared a meal for humanity which with him, so he get to eat with him, and it was him. Interesting. Now the Lord God, this is Genesis 2, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden. We did this when we did our series on big stories. There he put a man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pre- pleasing to the eye and good for food. God had prepared a meal. He prepares a garden full of food. He prepares this uh, wonderful place, this paradise, puts humanity in it and says, look, there's food. There's a sense where the food was prepared by God and the food was kind of planted by God and we were to work it. If you know the story, God stoops down, plants the garden, gets it all ready and then they, the man and wo- woman were asked to, to prepare it, to look after it. 
And so that's kind of going on, that God has planted this garden. But also in the middle of the garden, there's an interesting tree. And I don't rem- know if anybody remembers from this time. Last time I mentioned the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge and good and evil we'll talk about in a minute. But then you know what the tree of life represents, what, if we talked about it before. I think it represents Jesus. It represents Jesus. There's a sense where... Um, Jesus is the tree of life. He's the, he's the one who life comes from. He's the one whose fruitfulness that life would come from. So this is a picture of Jesus at the center of this beautiful paradise and uh, humanity could go and kind of have relationship and fellowship with him. So it talks about that, that God walked in the garden with them. And we get this idea of closeness. But I'm sure, it doesn't say, I'm guessing, you might want to come back at me later, but I'm sure they ate together. God ate together with them. I don't think he's just walked and then went off into his place for a room. There's this beautiful garden and there's a sense where they eat together and there's a sense where actually they can share Jesus together. But there's also another tree and that eating expresses our dependency on God. And I've said this before, there's something about food that expresses our lack of self-sufficiency because you can't live without food. And there's a sense here, right at the very beginning of the story, you can't live without food, you can't live without God. There's good fruit in the middle of the garden, but there's also Jesus as God in the middle of the garden. And there's a sense where uh, when we eat, we say, I need to take something in that's part of, that's not part of me, and I've said that before. And so, actually, when we eat and when we fellowship with God, we're saying, God, I need something of you. The life of you needs to be in me, otherwise I can't survive, yeah? So that's this idea about food right at the very beginning. Eating expresses our dependency on God. And, and in one sense, when they're taking what God has prepared, they're saying, God, thank you. Now, actually, if you flip it into the story, the next the, the story we've just read, actually, what has happened, there's a kind of preparation going on. Who's prepared what? It's not quite clear. We've got the next slide, Zach. So it says in Mark 14, where uh, it says, go into the city and you'll see a guy carrying a water jug and, and, he'll, and say to him, where's the room, my guest room? The teacher wants, where's the guest room? And then he says, go and make the preparations there. So there's this kind of like double preparation. I mean, it, it could be that Jesus was just kind of being the son of God and knowing everything and thinks, yeah, there would be a guy with a water jar. He has got a room and just go there but I think actually Jesus has made preparations I think Jesus has already spoken to these people made preparations and then he's on the back of that the disciples go and make preparations does that make sense it seems to follow doesn't it that that Jesus has made some preparations he says show your large room uh, upstairs furnished and ready Jesus has already spoke to this guy I believe and then he says right now go and make preparations so it's a bit like how God had made a garden prepared it but then they had to go and prepare it yeah do you see that so there's a sense where, where right at the beginning that Jesus is making preparations. He's making preparations for a meal. Just as God planted a garden, Jesus makes preparations for this meal and we're to get involved in it. Then the next thing that happens in the story, the massive obvious thing about eating. The serpent tempts them to eat the fruit, doesn't it? It says, Do, and you know the story, it says, you can eat of every tree in the garden except that one. And Satan says, God's holding out on you. You're, you know, he, he saved the best trees. Is, um, is not letting you have it. Uh, if you have it, you're going to be like God. It's gonna, life's going to be great. You're going to be wonderful. And you're going to eat this food, and it's going to make you free. 
for God knows when you eat it, you'll be like God. When they take in the fruit, they're expressing not dependence on God, but just the opposite. They're expressing independence of God. They're saying, actually, God, we don't need you. We'd like to be our own God. We like to take food and make it our own God. And actually, I, would, I don't want to get into the whole eating disorders and the whole kind of sense of food. But actually, food is, I mean, one of the seven deadly sins is gluttony, isn't it? And food is this kind of way, it's got this funny way, because we really try to manage food. We, tr- we either eat too much because we feel like, oh, I'd feel better if I ate that. You know, if I had a steak, oh, I'd feel good. If I had five sausages, yeah, I'm going to feel happy now. And there's this whole thing about eating food that makes us feel good. And there's also this whole sense about denying food so that we kind of look good. And there's this whole thing where we use food in a way that kind of expresses that we want to be in control. The whole thing about eating disorders is about control. Food is an interesting thing about control. There's this right at the beginning that they express their betrayal, their rejection of God by saying, I'm not going to eat from Jesus, I'm going to eat from this tree here. And actually, right in the middle of the story that, that we read, that Jesus eats with one who betrays him. Jesus has eaten with, with Adam and Eve, I believe, and then they, they reach out for something and say, no, we take something else, they betray him. But right in the story here, Jesus is betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, one of the tr- 12, it says just before the passage that we read, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And then it's later on in the story we read, it says, while they were reclining at table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. There's a sense where Judas Iscariot ate with Jesus. It says even like he's the one who dipped his bread in the, sa- in the bowl at the same time as Jesus. But he's the one who's going to betray him and it's a bit like what happened with Adam and Eve they're the ones who'd eaten with Jesus walked with Jesus lived with Jesus in the garden the garden that God had prepared for them they reach out for independence and betray him now we could roll on through loads of stuff but actually the next big meal where's the next kind of big meal in in the the Bible anyone have a go the Passover, the next big meal is the Passover. So what's happened is uh, um, that Adam and Eve have become uh, the nations of the earth. God chooses one man, Abraham, out of all the nations of the earth. Actually, it, God comes and eats with him. He says, he, he's wondering, can he have a kid? We had this word about what you can't see doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And um, God comes and eats with uh, with um, Abraham and says he shares a meal with him three guys come and eat with Abraham they share a meal and say this time next year you're going to have a kid so there's a kind of a meal there where God comes and eats with them and promises them something but then uh, Israel becomes this great nation it's, but it's in slavery it's in slavery in Egypt and God sets up a meal and this is the, the main as it were the main course of this meal so God's people are rescued by a meal this is from Exodus 12 Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The community of Israel must slaughter the lamb at twilight. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses when they, where they eat the lambs. That night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
On that same night, I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where, where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over. No destruction will touch you when I strike Egypt. And this is like the big meal in, in, in Israel's history. This is the big meal where they remember that, that they were in slavery. And the story is, if you know it, you might be familiar with the story, is they had to kill their lambs. They, they had to take the blood, uh, put it on the posts of the house. And when the angel of death, when destruction came... Uh, through Egypt that the angel would see the blood and pass over. Now it's interesting that sometimes we can uh, think, oh well that's all their lamb was for. Just, we just have the blood and the doorposts and, and pass over. But what are they doing inside? What are they doing? They're eating what? They eat the lamb. So it's, yeah, eat it quickly, thank you. That'd be good, I'd be fine there with my kind of northern table manners, that'd be brilliant. Uh, yeah, but you've got this sense where it's not just blood. The blood kind of says you're gonna, not going to be destroyed, but inside they're eating. Inside they're eating the lamb. Now, this is a picture, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's remembering this moment. He's remembering with his disciples this moment where, that they would, where blood would be shed and sins would be forgiven and, uh, and life would come. And actually that's what happens. It's that they, they kind of almost they enact this um, moment as part of their history. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a, a cenotaph or war memorial. You know, you go up to London or you go up to a different cenotaph on, on Remembrance Sunday. And what's happening on Remembrance Sunday is it's not just that you're taking at 11 o'clock, you're taking a moment to say, um, you know, the going down of the sun and in the morning will remember them. What you're kind of doing is you're kind of identifying with the whole story. You're trying to, you're identifying with the people that have died, but you're more than that, you're identifying with the, the whole story of what's gone on. Uh, so it's the anniversary of the start of the 100 years since the start of the First World War, and, and I've been watch, I watched a program by Jeremy Paxman, and there's a sense where actually that story is my story. It's not just this is some history that happened far away. I, that's my story. Uh, I know uh, friends of my uh, great-grandfather who, who died in that. They were all together from West Yorkshire, all lads one from one factory, and they all went in the Somme, and they all died together. And that, when we kind of wear a poppy, and when we do Remembrance Sunday, we're getting into the story. We're inhabiting the story. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's not just, this is just an interesting thing. What we're saying is we stand there, and so that's why the Queen goes, that's why the kind of royal family goes, that's why they stop the nation. And, and you have other times like that. So in Israel, they still stop the traffic, not at Remembrance Sunday, but they stop at Yom Kippur, which is similar to Passover, a sense where, where God would save them. And there's a sense where this, this, this is Israel's story. It's a story where we used to be slaves, we used to be nobody, we used to be beaten, but now God has come and saved us, and by his blood has set us free, and so that we can be a people who can enjoy God. And what's, what's happening is, if you've heard any kind of sermons on the Last Supper, you know that this is what Jesus is doing, isn't he? He's taking this story and saying, I'm going to reinterpret this story. I'm going to say that this story is about something else. So it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ is the Passover lamb. 
He's the one whose blood has been shed. It says on the first day in Mark 14, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, that's Passover, it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. While Jesus is eating this meal, they were killing the Passover lambs. Now there's some debate whether they actually had a lamb or not at the meal. One writer, Tim Keller, says they didn't have a lamb at the meal. But whether they had a lamb or not, who was the real lamb at the meal? Jesus was the real lamb at the meal. And what's happening? What's happening is Jesus is saying, this is a new story. This is, as you eat this meal, this is a new story. They're saying, what about, what, what does the blood do? So Jesus is going to die on the cross. His blood says, death can't pass. Death can't come in here. Judgment can't come in here. But actually, there's more than that going on because they eat the lamb inside. And one of the things that I just reflected as I was doing this, I think, we can think about um, Jesus, and there's one phrase that a guy used uh, that says, we, we only, we're like vampire Christians, we only want Jesus for his blood. And I know it's a bit of a, a strange phrase, but basically, the blood is there f- to forgive us. And that's amazing, that's wonderful that there's no destruction. But actually, there's something else that we miss in this meal. It's not that just, just Jesus' blood means we get forgiven, that's marvellous, and Jesus down the cross, we get forgiven. But what are they doing inside? Jesus says, doesn't he? He says there's something more going on, there's something more that you should understand. Kind of reinterpreting this meal. But what's happening at the meal is he sits down with them. As the people of, of God go through uh, out of Egypt, they come out of Egypt because it's Passover, and they go up to the mountain, and God invites some people up there with him. It says Moses and Aaron and uh, uh, 70 elders of Israel went up the mountain. They saw the God of Israel. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Now what happens is, it's not, just, it's not the whole of Israel that goes up. It's just a few uh, of the leaders of Israel go up, and they eat with God. What's happening in this meal? It's not everybody that gets to eat at that point. It's just Jesus sits at the table with 12 guys. But is that the limit of it? That's not the limit of it. That Jesus isn't saying, I'm just, I'm, I'm just here for a special people. Actually, what happens is, uh, one writer says, the table of the Last Supper is stretched out over the whole earth. It's not just 12 people that get to eat or the leaders of Israel get to eat, but now their table's stretched out over the whole earth. But Jesus at this time is just eating with 12 people and people get to eat with God again, just a bit like they did in the garden at the beginning. And also if you go on through the, through the story of Israel, they're often complaining about food. It says in Psalm 78 that when they're in the desert, they willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? They were worried that they weren't going to get food. What does God do when they're worried in in the desert? Does anyone know what God does without providing food? He provides quails and he provides manna. He provides food. And there's this whole question all the time around, will God provide for me? Will God provide for me? Will God look after me? Will God? Uh, what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Give us each day our daily bread. And because the, there's this anxiety about, will God provide for me? But actually, Jesus isn't just providing for 12 people. He's providing for the whole earth. It says in John 6, Jesus said, make the people sit down. And there's about 5,000 men there, so there probably might have been 10,000 people. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated and they ate as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish, and they all had enough to eat. 
There's a sense where actually this meal is not just for those 12 people, not just for those 12 disciples, but this meal, this Passover meal where, where, uh, where Jesus is the lamb is for the whole earth. It's not just for a few, it's for the whole earth. And actually answers the question, will God provide for me? So when you think, will God provide for me? Um, what does it says in Romans? You think, oh, will God provide? What about this? What about this? What about this? The right Paul says in Romans, he who did not spare his own son, does anyone know how it goes, but gave him up for us all, won't he along with him give us everything? If you're asking the question, will God provide? Am I included? What about my stuff? What about my brokenness? What about my sin? What about my messed up life? Will God provide for that? This meal says yes. Not just for the 12 that ate it, but for the 5,000, but actually for everybody who's going to come and eat. It says, God will provide for you. God will provide for you. Interesting little aside, just before in Mark 14... What happens is that, that Jesus is having... You can put it up, actually, is that the next one? Jesus, is, it, this is interesting. What happens in Mark 14, just before the Last Supper, this happens. When Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those were, were indignant. Why this waste of perfume? Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. I tell you, truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done has been told in memory of her. That's interesting. There's three words in there that are going to, we're going to hear again. What does she do with the jar? It's there in bold for you. Breaks it. What does she do with the perfume? Pours it out. And what does Jesus say is going to happen? She's going to be remembered. What happens next in the story? Mark doesn't... I wish Mark picked it out better than he did, because I've, so I've had to cheat and use Luke, but let's, let's go to the next slides out. Luke records the same event as we were doing in Mark. He says, when he'd given, uh, he took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. Gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after we'd eaten it, says, this is the cup that's poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. What Jesus is doing in this meal is actually saying, he's going to be the lamb. I've said that. He's going to be the one whose body's going to be broken. He's going to be the one whose blood's going to be poured out. And we've got to remember this meal. We've got to remember this meal. There's a sense where brokenness and poured out, and we've got to remember this meal. And, and so when we do this meal, it's not just, oh, this is a bit of religion. Well, actually, we're saying this meal is, our, is now our story. Who is on the menu? Who are they eating? What does it say when you do the communion? The words are, this is my body. This is Jesus they're eating. Jesus is the one on the menu. They're not just, and some Christians can do this, thank you, Jesus, for your blood on the doorposts. Thank you for Jesus, or for your blood that forgives me. But they don't go in and eat with him. It's almost like you get forgiven, but you never get close to Jesus. So what happened in the temple last week? They had their sacrifices, but they never got close to Jesus. And actually, Jesus is the one 
on the menu. He's the one we got to eat. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know, the, if you look at the kind of um, psychologists, uh, they, they say people are hungry for stuff. People are hungry for significance. People are hungry for purpose and meaning. People are hungry to be loved. People are hungry for stuff. And Jesus says, it's not just that you get your sins forgiven, but you get your hunger satisfied. You get to eat me. And when he does it in John 6, they're appalled. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in me. The Romans, in fact, there's a bit of graffiti on a tomb in, in, in the catacombs in Rome where they laugh at Christians and call them cannibals. Because Jesus is saying, come and you've got to eat me. And we know that actually it's not physically, we're not Catholics, it's not physically the bread that we're going to break is, is Jesus. But actually, the, the point is really, really important. What do you do when you eat food? It becomes part of you. It kind of feeds and nourishes you. You become your food. And when you eat Jesus, when you go inside, you have your sins forgiven, and you eat Jesus, you're in there in that room, you eat the lamb, you eat the bread, you drink the wine, when you eat Jesus, he becomes part of you. The most powerful doctrine in the church is we are part of God. That sounds like heresy, doesn't it? We're united with him, we're in union with him, we take him in, we eat him, by the Spirit he becomes part of us. And so when we eat this meal, it's just, no, nah, you know, so we'll get the bread. I think it's next slide, actually, is that, is it? It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and broke it, and when he'd given thanks, he said, take, eat. This is my body. When you take this, it's not, oh, this, oh, we got brown today, sliced, wafer. That what you're saying is it's not that this physically becomes Jesus' body, but actually the power of it is the same. You've got to believe that. That when you take this in, you're actually saying, I'm taking in you, Jesus. I'm taking your life into me. I'm taking your goodness into me. I'm taking in the very life of God into me. Man does not live by bread alone. What does it finish with? By every word that comes out of God's mouth. I think it was prayed earlier this morning what is the word that comes out of the mouth? Or better, who is the word that comes out of God's mouth? Jesus. He's saying, man don't live by bread alone, but not by the words in the book, but by the word whose who's book's about. You take and eat him in. He becomes part of you. You think I'm a messed up, ruined, broken person. But you take him in and life comes. Peter says it this way. says, Jesus' di- divine power has given us... His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may partake. What does partake sound like? It sounds like a, a posh word for what? Sounds like a posh word for eat, doesn't it? Get to take in God. Where does, where does God have his relationships? If you take in Jesus, you're kind of stepping right into the center of the universe. Where God has his relationships. Where does Jesus dwell? In that loving community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, excuse me. <laughs> and we step there. So when we break bread, it's not all better bread. You suddenly say, I'm taking Jesus in by faith. Sin's forgiven. His life in me. And, and it says, 
Where's Jesus' life hidden? In God. He's suddenly connected into the center of the universe. The life of God is in you. You get to eat with God like they did in the garden. You get to eat with God like the elders did on the mountain. You get to eat with God like those disciples did. In fact, Paul makes it much more explicit. Is not the sharing of, not the cup of thanksgiving, that's, that's this, let's do it, so I'm all prepared. Whoops. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Jesus? This is powerful stuff in here. Okay, it's grape juice from Morrison's. But it's powerful stuff by faith. The blood of Jesus, the life of God, the, the pure life of God that's in you. You get to take that in. And he says, we also, when we eat the bread, we participate in the body of Christ. And then it says this great community thing, though we are many, we are, you say it in the Anglican service, though we are many, we are one body. Because we share one love. This this sense of unity, of that, that, that Christ becomes part of you and together we become part of each other. Let me just land this down. Jesus finishes the meal by saying this. He says, I'm not going to drink this again and drink again the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it when God's world is made new. So you think, well, he's obviously not drunk it yet because God's world hasn't made new. But actually, God's world has already been made new because after the resurrection, he does. Doesn't, he actually eats. And I believe that there's a sense where he's connected with that. In fact, he's so powerfully connected with this meal that when he walks on the road to Emmaus, this is what happens. He's walking, you know, he's died, and they think it's all a disaster, the world's ended in, tr- in, in a mess, there's no new, this, I thought the world was going to be made new, that everything was going to be transformed, the future was going to be beautiful, but now it's a mess. And then Jesus is walking along the road with two people, and they walk along and he tells them all the story of the Bible, and they don't quite get it, a bit like you guys, a bit like whatever, I'm sure Jesus explained it better, and they listen more carefully. But then he, they sit down, and, he says, and they says, we got to the village, and they say, Oh, he says, I'm, going, I'm carrying on now. And they say, no, no, come and, come, and, come and walk, eat with us. And they say, come and stay and eat with us. And he says, when they were at the table, so Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And they went, it's him. It's him. And it's not that they just recognized him, but they recognized him when they broke bread. They recognized him when they broke bread. They say, there's something about this meal that helps me to remember who he is. There's something about this meal that I recognize him. It says, and they got up and returned from Emmaus at once to Jerusalem, and they found the twelve, and they all assembled together and said, it's true, he's risen. When you break bread, who is here? I've got to believe the risen Jesus is here. It's not, whoa, mystery. No, he's here. By, he's here. Almost as if we recognize him when we eat bread and wine. He's here. Let's finish the story. And it says, what happens as you do it? Paul says this in Corinthians. says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You're saying, it's true, he's died for me and he's risen again. And you know that it's looking forward to a future dinner. I love it. The angel said to him, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast. Unlimited. No price. Unlimited feasting. 
The story starts with God preparing a garden for feasting with him. Fruit. The story ends with God preparing a wedding feast for us to eat with him. Not just a few, but as many. Multitudes, multitudes, thousands of them. What did the early church do a lot of? They devoted themselves to setting up the PA and putting out the chairs. Important, but no. They devoted themselves to breaking bread and the Bible teaching. Breaking bread. Why did they do that? Why did Jesus say, do this as often as you drink it? Answer the question. Why did Jesus say, do this as often as you drink it? So we remember, so we think, whoa, this is my life. This is the story of my life. I was a slave, I was a captive, I was deserving of death, but now this is my life. And that that Jesus comes into me, that I share life with him, that the risen Jesus is right there as we eat it. This is my life. It says, they devoted themselves to breaking bread every day. Don't say Sundays and Wednesdays if you're lucky. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and broke bread in their homes. Where does this meal belong? In your temple courts, struggling for a temple, but pates might work, but also in your homes. As I'm preparing this, thing, Howard, why don't I do this? What's happened? What's, what's the, this meal being replaced by what at the start of a meal? Thank you for Naomi and thank you for this lovely food, Jesus. Yeah? Now that's not wrong, but I believe every time they ate a meal, they stopped and remembered they're all dependent on God. They're not betraying him. They're not living without him. It's not that life is not part of life, but he's the very centre of life. And I think that's what we should do, people. And I have moments where I remember this, and we do it, and then we forget it. In our groups, in our G1Cs, as we have G1 food together, we had a spell where we think, let's break bread together and remember it's all about him. That's what they did. And they ate together, it says, with hypocritical and critical hearts. No. It says with glad and sincere. There's something about when you pray with somebody, you can't lie. And there's something about, and Jesus says that if you've got something against the person, you need to sort out. There's something about when you break bread with people, you can't say, I'm not connected to you. Because although we're many, we're one body because we're part of one loaf. If you have a bit of this loaf and I have a bit of this loaf, and this loaf is Jesus, we're connected together. You can't say, I hate him. He's such a bad leader. But you can't. There's a sense of connectedness. There's a sense of togetherness. They broke bread with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who have been saved. When we break bread, we repent of being Judas, repent of being Adam and Eve and say, I'm sorry I've rejected you. Parts of my life. So there's something where we say, I'm done with sin. I'm not identifying with Jesus, Judas Am I identifying with Jesus? When we break bread, it's like when we eat food saying, I need food. You, you guys get four hours, my kids, four hours food. Jotham had unlimited breakfast. Then he had a whole bowl of cereal. He is dependent on his food. Some of us, we can go days and days and days without thinking about Jesus. But every time we have a meal, we're supposed to think these Jesus thoughts. I depend on you. We celebrate that, that God's Passover story, that we were slaves to sin, but now we're free. We're now God's people. 
we remember the amazing good news of Jesus. And we do like that woman. She said her life was broken and poured out. That's what we do. When Jesus, we come, it's almost that, there's that interface of Jesus' broken life and poured out blood. But when Jesus asks us to come, he asks us to come laying down our lives, breaking our alabaster jars, saying, this is this special to me, I lay it down for you because it's about you now. The things that we've held on to, we say, no, it's about you now. I break them, I pour them out, I live cross-centered. When we eat, we recognize the risen Jesus is here in this small company. We enact our union with Jesus. When you take the bread, you think, Jesus, we're part of each other. I can't die because I'm part of him. My body might go, but I can't die. I'm, I'm with him forever. We proclaim the future. Not as it ought to be, but as it is that Jesus is the king of the universe, that he's made it all, he's done it all, he's settled it all. He lays a table in the wilderness for those without God, that this table is stretched out wide. One writer says, its four corners touch the four corners of the earth. This big tablecloth that gets spread out. And people are out there looking for life and what matters, and I'm, I'm hungry for significance, I'm hungry for meaning, I'm hungry for love. And in this table they find it. And we anticipate the renewal of all things, even though things are broken and damaged, just like our bodies are broken and damaged and need food to repair, that the world is broken and damaged, but we anticipate God's renewal of all things. And we declare Jesus' body, Jesus' church is our togetherness. So I want you to try and come now, and as we break the bread, I want you to try and come and eat fresh. Because right from the beginning to the end, this is the meal that points to the cross that is our story. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.